We would like to dedicate this very special episode of Learning Shared to Sue Carpenter, wife of Barry, in fond and loving memory. Welcome to the Learning Shared podcast. So Learning Shared is a space for anyone with an interest in supporting the needs of vulnerable learners in our society, including those with special educational needs and disabilities. We'll be hearing from and talking with a wide range of colleagues and stakeholders, including teachers, specialist practitioners, school leaders, researchers, as well as parents and carers. They'll be sharing creative, inspiring ideas, effective practice and things they've learned along their journey. With that in mind, please get in touch if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. You can visit us at www.learningshared.org or tweet us at underscore learning shared. The Learning Share podcast is brought to you by Evidence for Learning and the EFL Send community. This is a growing community of teachers, practitioners, school leaders, researchers and academics that support children, young people and adults with special educational needs and disabilities, or indeed any form of additional learning needs. You can find out more about the EFL Send community and Evidence for Learning at www.evidenceforlearning.net. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, Professor Barry Carpenter brings together a panel of school leaders and parents to discuss and explore how schools can work with families of children and young people with special needs to create a genuine bridge for family-centred practice. During the episode, Barry refers to a recent meeting that brought together over 100 schools to look at this topic and we've put a link to a video recording of that meeting on the Learning Shared website at www.learningshared.org. And if you select episode 21, you'll be able to watch the video, which contains presentations from Barry, as well as school leaders and parents. And on the episode page, we've also listed links to various articles and resources. Welcome everyone to another in the Learning Shared podcast series. We've recently had a wonderful event where we looked at family-centred practice, where schools were encouraged to move from traditional thinking around partnership with parents to a wider, more 21st century honed definition of working with families, embracing members of families that the family themselves define as what the literature calls significant others in their lives. In this meeting today, I'm delighted to welcome not only practitioners from schools, but again, we have some terrific parents with us who are going to input their perspective and calibrate our thinking around how we evolve, develop and enrich that partnership with families. 
So I would just like to invite the four people who are with me today to just introduce themselves. If um, Vegeta, I could start with you and then Joe and then our two wonderful parents who are with us today. Vegeta Patel. Hello, my name is Vijitha Patel. Uh, I'm the principal at Swiss Cottage School, um, which is a 2 to 19 special needs school in the London borough of Camden. Uh, we have the absolute privilege to work with incredible children and young people uh, to unlock their talents. And at the heart of our school community is a very conscious approach to our partnership with families but uh, fundamentally how we're thinking about that relationship so that it is about what we're going to be able to achieve beyond their time at our school provision so that what we're able to do is actually empower um, all practitioners, but also the families to be able to support that smooth transition for our children and young people into the wider community so that they're accepted and their abilities and talents are really unlocked uh, as they are equal members in society. Thank you, Vegeta. And Joe. good morning. Good morning. I'm Joe Williams from Dubank School in Chester, which again is an all-age special school which caters for pupils with SLD and PMLD. Um, and again, we feel very strongly about working closely with our families because our curriculum, um, very much like Vegeta said, is focused on preparing our pupils for life um, beyond school and to enhance their life um, around them while they're in school. So very much key life skills um, and all, all members of the family are very much involved with that. Um, a lot of the outcomes that we identi identify for our pupils um, very much involve enhancing their life at home. Um, so for us, that, that connection with our families is, is right at the heart of what we do. Thank you, Joan. I'd certainly recommend to anybody listening to this podcast to go to the uh, earlier event that we recorded where you gave that wonderful presentation of a study that you carried out and the rich information that you prepared there really gave us a solid base for why we need to have family-focused, family-centred practice at the heart of our school communities. So, Maria, good morning to you too. Good morning. Uh, my name is Maria Schulz. Um, I've got two sons, um, one with special needs who is 13 years old and um, a son in mainstream who is 15 years old. Um, I'm passionate about parent participation. I think we have a really important role as parents to play in our child's learning. And I think we are the red thread, we are the lifelong teachers for our children, but we need to really work together with the schools to get this right all the way. And I think we can really empower each other if we get it right. Thank you. And you're absolutely right there about being the thread. I often say that it is those parents who are the first, the last and the enduring educator of their child. You know, that we as teachers are privileged to walk a certain journey with your child as co-educators with you, but as Vegeta's already alluded to, when our paid work, our paid employment is over, your journey continues. Um, and certainly I found with rearing my daughter Kate, who's now in her 30s, that you know everything you learnt with the teachers is inevitably valuable, their insights, but constantly we need them to share their script with us so it makes us stronger for the days when we walk alone with our son or daughter. Absolutely. Yeah. Welcome. And, and Sadia. Hi, good morning. I'm Sadia Mahmoud Marshall. 
Um, I'm mother of a beautiful daughter called Amaya. Uh, she's 19 years old now and in the process of transition. Uh, she's been at Swiss Cottage School since she was three years old. Uh, so we've had a long journey in the school. Um, I'm also passionate about uh, parent participation, but also I'm passionate about Amaya, uh, the social inclusion of Amaya in society. Um, so not only school development, but her inclusion and her rights um, in society. And I've, I'm her basically her voice. She's nonverbal. And I'm her advocate and her lobbyist, and I'm her voice. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. We're going to be in for a really good conversation today. So I'd like to ask our two colleagues from the school perspective, if you like, Vegeta and Joe. Um, when you enrol families in your school, what is it you need from the families? What, what information do they hold that will make you and your staff teams do their job better? Vegeta? It's such an important question and one where our philosophy as a school is almost to take the question and think about what the families are going to need from us. So we know that they're taking the biggest step, which is to trust us as a school to engage their child in a positive climate for learning, to really uh, be quite forensic about how we can design learning around their strengths, around the priorities, and holding on to that bigger picture. So as a school, I believe that what we feel is one of the most um, important factors that we could ask from our families, and we do, is um, to recognize the potential of investing in that relationship, uh, to understand our core values as a school. And um, in many ways, the, the most powerful things our families can give to us is um, an active participation in that relationship and really open communication. We want to move away from this sense of uh, there being risk or judgment. We want a mutual relationship. And if we can get that right, then actually the relationship is going to hold different forms of information during their time in different stages at the school. It also allows us to ensure that uh, there's almost a, a real sort of team spirit about the way that we're able to work together. And it ensures that as pupils make progress, the type of information that's needed is going to change if circumstances, um, you know, uh, factors in the home environment or outside of the school environment uh, are influencing uh, the profile of the pupil, pupil during a specific period, uh, whether that's um, medical circumstances, uh, the dynamic of the home environment, um, factors that could be in the local community. The, if we get the relationship right, those key pieces of information are going to weave into what we design for learning so that we can put that together with that valuable information that will sit around all of that sort of expert evidence that sits with the range of professionals. I would say the most important fundamental for us as a school is recognizing that the parents, carers, families are the experts of the child yes. and we need to be able to learn from them. Absolutely. And that's a wonderful sentence to finish on there. And I think you've beautifully articulated that team around the child and the family now becomes a part of, of your team and you part of theirs. So how enriching is that? And, and Joe, what would you add to that? Um, I mean, trust is something that I wrote down when mm. I was thinking about these questions as well. And I would definitely echo that. We, we need parents to trust us and um, buy into the fact that we are um, joining forces with them to support their child. 
Um, we, we are fortunate enough, we've just recruited a second family support worker. So, um, you know, they would always visit families. They would get all of those details, a bit like Vegeta said, we need all of those details. Sometimes parents have had real struggles and they've worked really hard to overcome certain things. And, it, you know, it's not just I would. these are the positive things I want and these are my aspirations. It's actually these are the real struggles that we've already had. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and the last thing I want it is for them to go backwards because somebody does a little thing that actually I've worked really hard to overcome. And sometimes those finer details are so important to parents and they have a, such a big impact um, on life at home. Um, so, yeah, we, we need to work, work together. We need to be a team. We need all the tiny, weeny details of, you know, this word has an association with this particular thing. Um, all the things that are not obvious to us because we haven't lived with that child or that young person, um, and those are the those are the details that that we need to know. Yeah, absolutely. I think you were right to start there with trust, um, because if we get that trust right, the bond will be so enriching for the families and and for us in terms of the quality of what we can do. And again, I loved your point there about those key words. Um, we still, you know, I've had it only very recently, a teacher realising a term into working with a child that if only she'd asked about those key words, the child would have been far more responsive than they had been. So it's, it's again, that the, the richness of information family members uh, hold. So obviously I need to do the converse of your responses to our two parents this morning. So, uh, Maria, do you want to, to say what you feel that that you need from families what what's been your experience i think i just just to kind of weave back also to what both vadita and and joe were saying that um trust and relationships are two very big things i think the relationship is really crucial in giving a parent the confidence to talk openly sure. with their child's teacher about their child's learning I think it's really worth um, investing in creating that bond quite early on. And also it needs to be easy for the parents to get in contact with the school, the parent or the family or the carer or the grandparents. Uh, a relationship yes. leads to better family engagement yes. and ultimately just leads to better outcomes for the child. Yeah. I think another thing I want to, to point out is the partnership working. Parents want to work in partnership with the school and it can only really happen if the school listen to and see the parent as an equal partner because the parent do sit with the expert knowledge of their child. And I think whenever a parent makes a contribution into their child's learning journey, it needs to be valued. If you get that right, I think you end up empowering yeah. both the school and the parent and possibly creating a pathway for real success. Yes. And I think the last thing I want to say is parents want high quality staff. They want staff who have the ability to develop a meaningful relationship with their child. They want staff who know their child, who are patient, who are caring and who are kind, and most importantly, who can engage their child in learning. Uh, uh, just absolutely. I, I love your, your phrase there, better family engagement leads to better outcomes. And Joan Vegeta, what are we all about? We're about those outcomes. And whether it be outcomes for Ofsted or outcomes for reporting to other audiences. So actually, here we've got an essential ingredient. It is that family engagement that'll make those outcomes better, but ultimately better for the student, for the young person. Um, and thinking, um, Sadia, where you're at now 
with your daughter in transition, those outcomes are really crucial, aren't they, to the quality of life that your daughter is going to have in her next uh, environment, social inclusion settings. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would like to echo um, what the other speakers have said about building trust and relationship. That's really important. All children are unique, but our special needs children are even more unique. And my daughter is nonverbal, so for staff to know, um, she doesn't have keywords, but she has yes. key signs whether it's tapping the head, whether it's rubbing her tummy, whether it's a look, um, these are key signs. And this is where we trust uh, the school to get to know our children and understand what she's trying to say with those signs and building that bond and faith, you know, because my daughter doesn't have the keywords. So I think that's really important. Um, I think transparency and good communication uh, is key for families. Um, you know, as I said, um, my daughter's nonverbal, so having clear... Uh, communication bridges between school and home is really important because she can't come and tell me what's happening. So be it in the school diary, be it in, um, you know, phone call, an open door policy where we can walk in and speak to staff or we can phone or email is really important uh, for me. Um, obviously, learning aspects, as uh, Maria touched on, um, you know, is really important that um, we have quality staff um, and quality therapists to bring out the best of our children uh, to ensure that they reach their potential. For me and my family, the most key thing for her schooling is that she reaches her potential, whatever that potential is, and the school is able to bring that out. So, um, you know, reassurance that our children are reaching their potential is really important. Um, the coordination is not just the learning, it's the coordination with therapists. Um, speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, physios. So we get much more of a holistic um, learning environment and attainment environment. So that's really important. Obviously, safety and well-being, like for any parent, is really important. And for us, it's crucial. So it's not just the physical safety, it's the well-being. Uh, feeling that a child is happy, um, accepted, reaching its potential, and happy amongst school, the staff, but also amongst its peers. Um, so the safety and the well-being aspect also, I think, for families is extremely important. Absolutely. I think, again, you, you've very skillfully there given us the big picture, but also the, the intrinsic picture, things like the signs. You know, these, the early interviews, the early meetings we have with our families when they enrol children in our schools are vital to get the, the bits there about, about signs. I have a little grandson who's just started a, a nursery um, and he, he'd used baby sign. And they never asked about that. And because of COVID restrictions, the interviews were not, in fairness to the nursery, as they might have been. But when his mommy pointed out to them one day that when he tapped his chin, he was actually mean to making the sign for eat. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, it was a revelation to the nursery staff. And it, it's those, again, it echoes with what not only you've said, but Maria said, those little bits of information, those key words. And Joe and Vegeta, I think you'll agree, those are essential for the starting points in learning. And that initial engagement and learning shared has had a big focus on engagement recently. But those, those are key to, to the quality of engagement we had. Uh, and as Maria said as well, the, the family engagement. So we've got this, if you like, holistic, to use your word, Maria, this holistic concept of engagement at all sorts of levels. It's absolutely key. In, in the um, 
earlier meeting that we had that you all made your valuable contributions to as well. We looked at the notion that I had developed over some years now of a self-defining family. That all of our families are different. All of them, again, as you've implied, uh, um, um, Sadia, uh, uh, are unique. Um, but still, schools do just talk about partnership with parents and therefore they're only focusing on two people whereas in reality there's more than just two people uh, in rearing that that child and in, in many cultures of the world particularly if you took the Maori in New Zealand and their concept of whanau it's a much wider group of people who are seen to have responsibility for rearing that child and I just wondered if if from your experience and starting with our, our two parent contributors, if you've got people that are, if you like, not traditional blood relatives that you feel are significant others in the life of, of your uh, special children. Sadia, do you want to? Uh, yep. So, <clears throat> I mean, the family social unit obviously is extremely important. So you've got the parents, but for me, it's way beyond that. You've got the siblings, yes. you've got the grandparents, you've got the cousins. You know, we have an Asian extended family. So, you know, there's not just the parents, there's, you know, the grandparents, the cousins, <laughs> the uncles and aunties. And ironically, with COVID, um, we've become even closer because we used to meet once a year, but now we're actually meeting once every 10 days through Zoom. Um, mm -hmm. You know, all the cousins going, so between Spain and, um, you know, uh, whether it's Pakistan or in Australia or Singapore. So um, I think that's really um, extended family units, really a big support for us, emotional and physical support. You know, um, I think we rely on a larger community um, who, who um, provide support, socialization and stimulation for our children. So in our case, um, we have a very large support network. Um, Obviously, we start with the school team. Um, it's beyond the education. When Amaya starts a new year, we create a special bond with the teacher and the TAs. Mm -hmm. And it's almost, I, I actually can say they become part of family. Excellent. You know, because sometimes they come to Amaya's birthday parties. Um, you know, we talk about, we load family events on the EFL. Um, so the teachers and the TAs really of the particular class Amaya's assigned to, I can actually say in most most terms, you know, they become part of the family, extended family. Um, obviously, Amaya has several carers. So we have one particular carer who comes every day after school. Now, she's part of the family. She cares for Amaya while I'm working or looking after the other children. But she has dinner with us. She'll support me when Amaya hurt, hurt her ankle. She went, you know, above and beyond helping me in extra hours to look after her. Um, so the carers, whether it's in the week or in the weekends, you know, also become part of the extended family for us. You know, so they go on holiday with us, they celebrate birthdays with us, you know, so that's that's a very important component. The other thing we have are buddies. So um, Amaya participates in the short break program of Camden and we have a particular buddy from her short break program who comes on Saturdays, sometimes on weekends. Um, and that's to support with her integration into local community. So she'll take her shopping, uh, in Waitrose to buy, I give a little shopping list and money. So she gives her, you know, takes her into the community for that or into the park or into an indoor play area or takes her swimming. Um, but it's this communication with local community is what she supports us with, you know, to give us respite. So while we have respite, Amaya is integrating into community through buddy program. Now they're also part of our extended family. Yes. Um, we have volunteers who come. 
Uh, Amaya belongs to the Spectrum, which is a medic um, uh, volunteer group. I think it's at UCL University. And we have two lovely young budding students who are studying to be doctors who come twice a month and they just play with Amaya. And it's amazing how they're taking back. Um, Amaya's teaching them and giving them a richness of to take back into the medical field so that they will eventually become doctors and understand our children. Um, but at the same time, you know, she's getting lots out of them as well. And they play and I can hear them laughing in the room. So they're also part of our extended family. You know, the volunteers who participate in our life, which is amazing. Um, and then Amaya also belongs to um, I Can Dance, uh, which is a lovely dance movement therapy group. She attends on Saturday. She's been doing that as an after-school club at Swiss school since she was three years old. Um, and, you know, the workers who work with her, our support workers, have been with her since she was three. And they're also part of our family. You know, sometimes they come and visit her. Again, they come to her birthday parties. So, you know, it could be endless, actually, but our family unit is, goes way beyond the parents and the family. You know, it's the community, it's volunteers, it's buddies, it's after-school clubs. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge extended family, which is, which is a bridge between our family and the community. I think your practical description there is, is the best definition of family-centred practice that I've ever heard. And, and you know, I talked about those three concentric circles. And um, Vegeta, I think your pages, if you ever were to do that with uh, Sadia, would need to be huge because <laughs> the definition is so all-embracing. It was a beautiful example. And, and Maria, I'm sure you've got some lovely examples for us too. Yeah, I mean, I would it basically echo whatever Sadia has just said because I think I think um, particularly we I mean we work super hard as parents of disabled children they effectively are unable to go out and and create those relationships themselves so so we work to for them to have people around them who are loving and caring and I think you know we you know what we invest as parents in that extended network is probably quite a lot more than your sort of box standard mainstream family would do under normal circumstances I think um again I mean in, you know we we also have lots of volunteers and carers and and you know various people coming in and out of our lives and I think particularly we've been very lucky to have um, the same carer for over 10 years and um, and he literally just became like a big brother and sort of my third son uh, and and you know although he's he's uh, has Jamaican heritage I and mean, we always joke with him about how he obtained his Danish genes after he was born because you know he's just so much part of our family and he's learned sort of lots of, of Danish culture you know so it, that's quite fun I think in terms of um, what Sadia was saying you know every year at school when when our children go into a new class I mean you kind of you, you start afresh with the teacher and the and the class team and you really as a family want to build that relationship that I was talking about before which I think is, is goes you know throughout school lives one of the main things of success is you know you want to have that relationship quite early on and established as soon as possible and and you know I've, I think we've been lucky throughout our journey so far at Swiss that the 
passion that you get from the teachers, you know, if you, if something bad has happened in your family, you know, they're there worrying with you, worrying about how they can support your child to get through, you know, whatever you're dealing with. And also in turn, you know, they, you feel that whenever you've achieved something at home, they are almost as happy as you are as a parent. And, and, you, and you really, really feel that relationship and partnership. And I think that, that just, you know, makes makes it feel like f- family like it's extended family okay absolutely yeah. and Joe, listening to those eloquent descriptions do you feel that that reflects the ethos you have in your school and, and the way you practice it's absolutely fantastic to hear that actually when you hear it just said from a parent perspective the number of people that are wrapped around our children and and they all love and care for them and they all want the best for them. Um, I think using EFL has really um, made us very aware of this, of how many people have an impact on the lives of our children. Um, And actually, a lot of those other people, like you're describing respite carers, etc., we've had similar experiences where you know, it is with these wider members of the family or, you know, wider people who support the child. They actually have breakthroughs sometimes that we haven't had with those children um, or, or breakthroughs that the parents themselves haven't had in it. And it's coming in another way. Um, but if we're all aware of that, that is a really powerful thing in terms for us planning next steps with those children. With EFL now, we've actually got a few uh, grandparents and a few respite carers and mother-in-laws, et cetera, that are, um, you know, joining with the accounts, which is really exciting. And just the other day we had a teacher came and asked, you know, there's a, a, a young man in my class who goes out a lot into the community with his PA and um, she would like access to EFL because she feels that she could link with us and the work that she's doing with them in the community. She's listened to mom describe what we're doing in school and she thinks she could help and she thinks she could develop that. Um, and she has that one-to-one time with him, which mom doesn't have because he has, you know, a few other siblings. Um, we've got another young lady that goes to a respite carer um, for weekends. And um, she she associates going there with doing all sorts of lovely, practical, girly things. And she loves it. And the respite carer now is uploading evidence quite regularly of cooking activities, etc., um, things that, that are so exciting for us to see in school and so useful as well. They just um, give another, you know, a, another window into, into that child's experiences and, and what they like doing and um, things we can develop in school. Um, so EFLs, I would say, has really, it, it's developed our, our awareness of this hugely. Absolutely. And I th- I, Joe, that's a beautiful insight. And I think I'm going to flip it to Vegeta and say, um, you know, Vegeta, if from your experience, because I know as well you've been using the the parent portal. Although I would say to Alan, maybe we're looking at rechristening this the family portal. Um, you know, we would you like to share with us some of the uh, the words Joe's just uh, said there, and how it's enriched practice at your school. Absolutely, and and what Joe describes is really important. So, uh, on the educator's side and the even the school leadership element of it, it helps us understand that the construct of the family, and that that can be so textured, but also variable across our different communities as well. So, um, what you've challenged 
quite a few of us to think about, Barry, is um, that notion of family and how that's going to um, not be one sort of static model. Um, it's allowed us to really take a step back and really consider as an all through special school, just like Joe's school, um, there's the way that the family is creating that community in the earliest years because they need to have a connection with those other family members or professionals or um, external specialists to help them really um, make sure that those that they are trusting around their child are recognizing those core characteristics of their child at the earliest stages. Uh, when we get towards what we feel is like our middle school, we notice that families are starting to think about those relationships because they want to reduce dependency, increase flexibility in their child recognizing different adults, uh, the role of uh, sort of carers and even advocates to support their child to start to build trust with others outside of the core family unit. And then as we get into sort of our sixth form, we've noticed that um, families are very much starting to build that, that family community that's going to play a very crucial role outside of 25 plus is sort of this way that we see it, but not because um, there's any deficit. It's not because there's a gap that needs to be filled. They're extending the notion of family because they want a real awareness of who their child has become as an adult. They want those who are going to recognize their potential and actually build on that progress because it's not that end of education means um, and that pathway into adulthood means that there's a predefined destination. And actually that new sort of design of a family Everyone's playing a role in being able to advocate for the young person, but to also shape what that pathway is. And I think that's the most powerful side for us on what EFL is enabling. It's it gives quite a systematic tool to say advocacy is going to be evidence informed. It is going to be based off of journey of progress over time, not just in those final years or at a particular stage. And it's a great way to also you know, give a common language around uh, who these important people are for the young person themselves, because the young person's able to represent that. We don't need to represent that for them. That's that's the, the interesting sort of, I think, uh, sort of moment we've come to. So everything around person-centered planning, what EFL is going to do to wrap around that is a, is a curious next step for us. Fabulous. And I, th I think, um, Sadia and Maria, you've both had experience of siblings using EFL. Maria, would you like to start and tell us how that went? Yeah, so I think <clears throat> when um, Alex was younger and my, my other son was younger as well, I think it really helped demystify what Alex's school was all about. Because I, th I think, you know, obviously it's a completely different setup. And, and when you have, you know, a young child, just seeing his brother being nonverbal and and not really being able to to you know put on his clothes or play or do you know the things that my other son would do yeah. it's just like so so what would school be like for him and then just actually being able to watch small clips of Alex doing various things at school and playing ball in the playground and seeing pictures from school trips and and him sort of engaging in cooking sessions has been really really helpful for just decoding what school was like for his disabled little brother yeah and i actually think um 
so during lockdown and, and the whole COVID situation has brought a different aspect into it because um, one of the teachers had done some pre-recorded uh, yoga sessions. And actually I thought, well, you know, <laughs> that could be quite fun for them to, to yeah. try out together. And I think just because it's sort of step by step and it's talked through and you can pause it. And I mean, Oliver, he, he looked at it a couple of times and then after that he felt confident to actually do a session with Alex. And, and over time, you know, they, it became like a weekly thing that they did together. And, uh, and actually just, you know, watching, be, being able as a parent also to step back and just watch that happening was really wonderful. So yeah. I think those are the sort of two examples of how it's, it's been good for us. For you know. Just powerful examples of how the Evidence for Learning app can not only reach out to the family, mm. but then permeate that family and embrace others and, and in some ways giving your son confidence. Um, yeah. with, with Alex yeah. um, and those things are, are so important um, you know, when, when my daughter Kate was in the school system we didn't have anything as wonderful as the Evidence for Learning app but I certainly believed in those latter years of her siblings being part of the annual review meetings mm. because they, you know if we think the child years have been difficult let me tell you I don't want to depress you particularly smart here, but um, the adult years can be hell and uh, because there's, uh, there are fewer services and we really are having to battle and advocate and be that confident champion for our, our son uh, and daughter. And I, I just, we all have to face the reality that we won't be here one day. And I want uh, Kate's brother and sister to be able to attend whatever review meetings are happening for Katie's adulthood, to be able to articulate what her needs are, to be that advocate that you have so powerfully been but we have to face the reality. We can't be that perpetually. Um, and it's just so good to have them there because actually you come away from, I came away from some of those meetings, having really rich conversations with Matthew and Grace about Kate, about her future. And their insights sometimes were better than mine because they're nearer in age. Mm. <laughs> there is an age gap between us and our children. And I thought, um, Sadia, when you were saying about those two young people coming from UCL, the medical students, actually, um, your daughter is meeting with her peers, isn't she? Absolutely. Difference yeah. They're yeah. just a few years older than her, you know, three, it's, four years. They're, they're her sister's age, you yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. So a, you know, it's, it's, it's a more normal peer group, isn't it? We're not a, their peer group. You know, we, we have oh. a different oh. role. So, no, I think that, that that's just a, a fabulous experience. And I, um, I, I just wonder, too, now, thinking about that pathway to adulthood, and, and Sadio, I want to bring this back to you. Um, in what way do you see EFL and, and all this, the information that, that's there and the opportunities it gives? How, how do you plan to take that forward through the transition and beyond? Um, well, first of all, give you some examples of how EFL is sort of seeing us through this transition. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, we've been, um, the school has been uploading videos on Amaya doing um, sort of informal um, employment pathway um, skills. So photocopying, um, laminating, shredding paper. So, you know, again, that's been a shock to us because we didn't even know Amaya could do all that sort of thing. So that's been <laughs> really enlightening um, that she's been doing all these sort of potentially some sort of internship or work placement. I, I love that video in a previous podcast, Sally, of her pushing that trolley from... Trolley, exactly. <laughs> that is wonderful. Yes. 
brilliant <laughs> and, and as an expression of autonomy that mm. yeah probably they don't always show us as their parents yeah absolutely pushing a trolley around the school knocking on doors and asking what sort of cereals they want you know <laughs> um, and using her ipad to talk through that so um so you know um that's been really um interesting is that it's efl has showed us how that she is going to possibly move from school and yes. transition into college or adult life or possibly some sort of employment. So that's been really enlightening. And um, to tell you the truth, if we hadn't seen those videos put up on EFL, I don't think we would have believed it, yeah. you know. Um, so so that's been um, amazing. Um, I think the uh, EFL will support us also in the transition in the sense that I believe the speech therapists are also already starting to uh, film some of Amaya's um, use of her communication through her uh, her, her communication app on the iPad uh, to demonstrate to her college where she's going next, Alexander Center, on how Amaya communicates. Yes. Um, because that's crucial for us. You know, as I said earlier, Amaya's unique. So she doesn't have words, keywords, but she has signs. And she um, navigates her way through this clicker app on the iPad. And she's actually quite communicative and put sentences together. Um, and so I think the school want to use EFL, especially at COVID where they can't go in and have school meetings. Yeah. They're using it to share with the speech therapist that she'll be transitioning on to college um, and the physios and the OTs. So that's, um, I believe, already happening now. Um, and then I guess, um, yeah, so we will be using EFL, um, well, the school is using EFL um, to showcase where Amaya's at in terms of her learning, her life skills, uh, in terms of her communication, so that we have some, you know, um, follow through um, at college. So they have a good picture where Maya's at, um, simply because, you know, we can't do those face-to-face -face meetings at the moment. Um, so that's crucial. I mean, you know, during the pandemic, yeah. um, it's crucial that the school, the college, um, you know, has a proper, we have a proper transition process in place despite not having physical meetings, um, on where Amaya's at in her skills, in her life skills, her learning, um, you know, potential uh, employment pathway, communication. Uh, so the teachers and the therapists are um, using EFL um, as part of the transition process as a handover to a college, you know, which is extremely reassuring for us. And those videos are better than a thousand words on a report, aren't they? Absolutely. They just give such insights, Emma. You know, Joan Vegeta's fellow teachers, you know, we know how hard we've tried with the words on paper before or typed via the computer to capture the, the essence of the attainment and achievement. And haven't we been frustrated at times because we didn't have the words to describe the minutiae but yet significant mm. types of attainment that our young people are going through. And, and so I think to, to bring this together, I, I would... We've listened to some powerful examples from our two wonderful parents there. That's It's so rich. I, I just want to commend you both because as somebody who's been into family-centred, family-focused practice for so many years, both as a parent, as an academic and as a, a teacher, um, I still don't think I could get anywhere near the quality of description you give to that. You bring such vibrancy in life and I just applaud uh, everything you've said today because it I hope so many ears will get to hear the messages you've given. But Vegeta, could I start with you as to um, how you would say to school, what you would say to schools who've yet to, to sample, if you like, the, the parent, the family dimension of the Evidence for Learning app. What would you say to convince them that this is so worthwhile? 
what's, um, we're in an accountability system and I can see sometimes how that actually leads to the sense of sort of risk that school leaders, uh, governing boards may feel. But if they can take a step back and recognize, if they look at their use of EFL at the moment and how that's promoting a reflective inquiry for their teachers and the support staff, and then just take a lens and consider what that could do for a reflective inquiry for families. And the fact that it's not really a conduit, it's really a bridge, that that sort of co-reflection is something that has such potential because it can be the piece that allows families to have total ownership of their empowerment. Yes. We don't empower them. This is their child's data. Yes. Accessing that allows families to decide how they want to utilize it. We've heard great examples from Maria and Sadia. None of those ideas have come from the school. They know their family. They know how they want to use this for their network, how they want to embrace it for their, you know, um, Alex and Amaya themselves and their own identity of their strengths and what they can do. My, my most important message to any school that's considering how much do we want to release would be, why isn't it all released? Let's look at that answer and ask, what is it that's causing that resistance? And if there is any sort of level of curiosity or concern about what it may mean for different stakeholders, choose a group of parents, let them pilot it, let them show you the evidence base if that would build the confidence. We as schools don't need to try to make that plan. If we can always take those steps to have parents as a working group or a working party, actually they're gonna give us the greatest sense of, you know what, this is what was beneficial. Uh, if there's a developmental aspect on the quality of edits, on the types of observation notes, et cetera, the working group's gonna be able to articulate that to other groups of families, because in all of this, the greatest learning I would say we've had as a senior team is at no point did anybody see this wrapped around the terminology perfection. It was never about that perfect EFL journal because that whole concept went out the window the moment it was wrapped around reflective inquiry. And yeah. then we're all in this sort of journey of engagement together. And I think some schools, um, not through any fault of their own, I have no judgment. I can recognize how there might be a level of uh, hesitation because it is such an accountability model. We've got to have the conviction to say what we're doing for our schools is right for us, is right for our families, and the accountability can come after. And if we're making those decisions in the right way, we're doing the best for our families, which means we're doing the best for our pupils. And actually, we're doing the best for our staff because they can only have a more informed picture on pedagogy if they're in that informed conversation with families. Golly, I think you've given uh, a, a, a school listening to this, Vegeta, development plan. Um, Joe, what would you like to add to that? <laughs> I think I, I would echo all of that. And I, I've equally, you know, encountered other schools at meetings that are quite reluctant. And mm. um, to us as a school, our ethos, um, you know, is about supporting children in any way that we can and recognising all the angles of that. We can't teach our children effectively if we don't work with parents. Um, and I think when you really listen to parents and what they go through, and um, if you really truly are listening, 
and you stop and you think about their perspective. Um, you might put aside your concerns about accountability and your concerns about, um, you know, finer details of quality of evidence and comments and links to assessments and what this shows. And they are finer details. And a lot of that is concerned with teachers planning, etc. When you stop and you put that to one side and you think about your parents and your families, to me, if that video is going to make a parent smile or a family smile or, or you know, excite a sibling, you've, you've got to send it. You've, you've got to do it. Um, you know, what, 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 why else are we collecting this evidence? And I think it very much comes back to, like Vegeta said, it's the why. Why are we doing this? Why are we using EFL? What are we teaching these kids and why are we doing it? And I think, you know, schools are very good at adopting systems an EFL can be viewed as a system by school staff and a system becomes, you know, a list of things that we then have to tick off and do. And, you know, it's not about that. It's about the child and it's about family. Um, and I think that needs to be the message. Um, and that's difficult because obviously, you know, it's a fantastic system. We've got all of our assessments in there now and everything links, but it's all evidence based and supported by evidence. But I think it, you know, that it puts that worry onto teachers. A lot of teachers and school staff are perfectionists as well. <laughs> and I think that's a difficult barrier. Um, we like things to look just so. Um, we like to show ourselves to be the best, that we're doing the best job. And that's because we're passionate about the children and we want the best for them. But sometimes getting the best for the children is not having the perfect piece of evidence. <laughs> It's about sharing and celebrating and working together and being a team. Um, and I think for me, that was the most exciting thing about discovering EFL. Um, I've been a, you know, a class teacher as well in my school for many years. And it, it was always the one thing that I wished that we had. You know, you'd get these amazing moments and you would have no way of sharing that with the families um, other than picking up the phone and describing it. And as Barry said, you know, words just are not the same. You have to see it. You have to see these things. Um, and it's great. We've got EFL. We can see everything we want to see and we can share it. Um, and to me, that should be the most important reason for using the system and everything else should come second to that. And yeah. um, so, as Vegeta says, it, it is a, it is a balance, and we've got to keep working at that balance. Yeah. And, and you've just made a very um, obvious point there, Joe, but one that actually you've sent my mind spinning, and I, and I it's just enabling me to draw together the threads of this conversation that we've shared together today. Um, and it was evidence that um, evidence for learning is just about that. And evidence is power. Evidence is power to you as, as school leaders, but also as teachers, to articulate to Ofsted how your children have made progress, attained, achieved. It's, it's power to our families to, to show other family members, as, as Maria said with her sunshine and the yoga session, as, as uh, Sadi has said, with all of that wider extended family that she defined and included in her circles of family uh, support. And, but actually, in essence, it is power to our young people themselves because those video clips tell their story of 
who they are, what they can achieve, and what their aspirations are. Why shouldn't they have a vision for their future? Um, I remember Katie saying to me when she was probably um, the same age as, as Amaya is now, uh, that she wanted to go to university like her older brother, at which I kind of took in a deep breath and thought, well, how do I persuade the UCAS system that Katie Carpenter really is eligible? Well, I couldn't. But like like you, Sally, I found a very good college that is just like a university, actually, in its dynamics and just that, that vibrancy that young people together have. But I so wish that I had the video clips that could convince people because she went through that college and she passed NVQ uh, and is a qualified waitress, hospitality and housekeeping, and to this day has never worked as a waitress because nobody would believe she could actually do those things. If I'd have had those videos, I could have showed them. She can actually run the till in a restaurant and has the money management skills to do that. So I think, you know, evidence for learning has bought us a 21st century evidence tool for 21st century children. That the technology, instead of dominating us for once, is truly serving the needs of our children, of their families, and of their schools. We are all combined in one central purpose. Today, each and every one of you has given such passion, such conviction, such rich insights of how, as we said in the title of our previous podcast on the theme of family-centered practice, how we talk to families, how we listen to families, how we work with families, with one central purpose, to get to the best evidence and outcomes for our children and young people. Thank you for what you've given today. It's going to be so valuable to so many people who get the privilege to listen to this podcast. Thank you once again to Evidence for Learning for offering us the platform to share this rich thinking. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The homepage for the podcast is www.learningshared.org. Barry Carpenter's webpage is www.barrycarpentereducation.com and you can email us at learningshared at theteachcloud.net or tweet us at underscore learningshared. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please do get in touch with feedback if you'd like to either suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. Finally, you're welcome to join the conversation via one of our online communities of practice. We've got groups on Facebook and LinkedIn and details are on the Learning Shared web pages. So for now, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and be well.